When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, oh, frabjous week. Welcome to the TED Talks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a frabjous week, and what you know why frabjous? this is a frabjous week. What is, is that a word? That's a word. Okay. What right. is? Sounds like okay. out of Harry Potter. <laughs> no, it's not Harry Potter. Jordan, you know where frabjous comes from. I have no clue, but I am looking it up on my it trusty comes, laptop. So, so Dan, the new producer, is waving his arms. Delightful. Dan knows where frabjous comes from. It's the Jabberwock. My bad. Uh, my okay. bad. It means delightful or joyous, apparently. Oh, frabjous day. She giggled. Jordan That's has his laptop to... open and he's yeah. Googling. Yeah. <laughs> I, am, I am researching right now. Anyway. It is a frabjous and there's... Any and all long-time listeners of Slate Money know by now it is a frabjous week because who is back in the studio but... Kathy O'Neill. Welcome back. Hey, it's great to be here. Hot off Missed you guys. your Canadian triumph. Oh my God, it was amazing. It was amazing. So this is the Talking TED Talks edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. Kathy has given her TED Talk and she is here to give us a postmortem of just what on earth goes on at this place. I was thinking of it more as a victory lap than a, a postmortem. Okay, a, vic- okay. a victory lap. There you go. Um, we do have Jordan Weissman. Hello, everyone. We do have Anna Shemansky. Hey there. And we are going to be talking about TED Talks as a kind of as a thing. Um, we're going to talk about talks as a thing because, you know, there's certain Obama types who are like back in the news for forgiving talks. And so this is just going to be the talk talk edition. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Talk talk. But yeah, Kathy. Hi. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. So you gave your TED Talk. Happened. And everyone I know who's given a TED Talk, like mm-hmm. all they do for months before they give their TED Talk is kvetch about the TED organization and the and what they put you through um, without any payment, right? No direct payment. 
The idea is that eventually we'll get to the indirect payment. We'll, by the we'll end get to of the, the indirect payment by the time we stop talking about Barack Obama. Barack Obama, but they, but they really like. For those of us who've given talks in the past, we like we scribble down some ideas, maybe put something on an index card, get up on stage. <laughs> talk. It's not like that. No, it's not. Although I have to say, I resisted quite a bit of that pressure. But I mean, the people around me were so stressed out that I made a pact with one of them that if like if something went wrong <laughs> and one of us started pooping on the stage, then the other one would run up to the stage and poop in solidarity. <laughs> um, turned out we didn't need that. That's but like the weirdest worst case was, scenario. <laughs> well, we like figured uncontrollable bowel. <laughs> but that's exactly how this is like the fever pitch they get you to. We're like, I'm not sure if I can not poop on the stage. It's really ridiculous. The other theory I have about it is the reason they put you through so much stress um is that like afterwards when you're finally done and when everyone else is finally done there's just a whole lot of sex it's like the wow. fucking olympic village <laughs> except ted village that's that's not that's unexpected amazing yeah that's amazing but like the olympic village so everyone's so, so known like, for being like extremely attractive hard-bodied like well olympic <laughs> athlete the ted talks you, aren't you guys guys not, listen, not, not, <laughs> listen some not, people I, find I, smart people attractive and, and by the way non-corporeal sex <laughs> and guys most of this yeah probably i'm exaggerating for a fact because that's what i do but like <laughs> and i should also mention that like the average ted speaker is pretty attractive yeah, and, okay. and and I will add that, that the official slogan of TED is ideas worth spreading. Oh God. <laughs> okay. All yeah, right. which Where is just, like just like gonorrhea. Just like gonorrhea. Yeah. No, this is like, <laughs> it's a viral idea. And wow. I got another virus. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sorry. But, but really what I I, yeah. I should have said. Did you have is, an idea which was worth yeah. spreading, Kathy? Well, yeah, I talked about my book. I talked about weapons of mass destruction. I talked about, you know, how we have we have to hold algorithms accountable. And I ended with kind of a call, like a political rallying cry. Was was there a call to action? Yeah. It, do, is that a thing that the TED Talks want? Is no, no, call to no I don't think so. No. I changed it at the end without telling them. Uh oh. Which is something like they're not that you kind of not supposed to do. But like they they are control freaks. So what you have to do is like nod and smile and then give the talk you want to give. So what they want, like walk us through this. They're like, yeah. you have a good book, but. Can you please like turn it into a story with narrative arc? Put yourself in there more, and like ideally have like some like triumphant note you can end on, something like that. Yeah, there's a there's an arc uh, which is sort of the, the I mean it's a joke at this point, like how formulaic TED talks are, but it's kind of and they're they're really not all they don't all follow this exact thing, but the idea is you start positive, you connect with your audience at some personal level, and then you get deep you know, and kind of shocking, maybe, and in my case, a little scary, threatening, but then you end with saying, but we can, we can do this, you know, and like you end up on an upbeat. And then, you know, people get so excited, they rise to their feet, like, not only is there a problem that we didn't even know about, but there's a solution that we're super excited about. <laughs> Yay! You know, and that's, the, that's the general idea. And and how many of the TED, I mean, you saw pretty much all of the TED talks. I didn't, year, because right? it's, I really maxed out especially with Elon Musk, which we're going to talk about. But like, I mean, there were some talks and I should mention that like, I, I feel like I had a pretty net positive experience overall. But one of the things that happened was that I was 
my session was moved. I was originally supposed to be in an, something called the our algorithmic overlords. No, our robotic overlords, which I was like, oh, this is perfect for me. You know, perfect. But I was moved to like Wednesday night instead, which was a totally different session. It doesn't matter to people on the outside what session you're in. But like when you're in the conference, it kind of seems like it matters. So I was a little bit like, what's going on here? What's going on? And so I went to the robotics overlord talks and it was it was basically a bunch of AI professors, mostly white guys, um, talking about how wonderful the future is going to be once they basically are in charge of everything. <laughs> it was like really scary. So we we are welcoming our robot overlords, basically. One of them was even asked, and this is a guy from like Boston Scientific, and I don't think the Q and A gets onto the final edits of the it never does. No. Well, he was asked afterwards, like, um, do you have any concerns about this, about the coming robotic? you know, proliferation. And he was like, no, no, I love it. So the, the how many of the talks in general would you say fall into the general bucket of simple solutions to complex problems? Well, quite a few. I mean, so my my friend Kate gave a talk about uh, climate change and she's she's at the Columbia um, World, what is it called? The Earth Institute. Earth Institute. And so she was talking about like, you know, the, the uncertainty around how clouds are, clouds are going to um, actually move and how whether they're going to save us from global climate change the answer is no um <laughs> but then the guy after her was a guy um and i don't remember his name but his his idea was like just throw a bunch of chalk into the air <laughs> like literally just throw a bunch of chalk into the air and he wasn't a scientist <laughs> um, he was like a, a former computer programmer oh, it's no. so indicative of like the male female response of some guy who knows nothing <laughs> Right, right. Because she has like a, you know, she could, she has an actual degree in physics and she knows stuff yeah. about. So she, but to their credit, and like, again, it's not going to go into the final cut, I don't think. She brought was brought onto the stage at the end and was like, you know, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and by the way, like, there's something called consent. And like, you are trying to do this without, you know, the, the informed consent of literally anyone in the world. It's a bad idea. Um, but, it's, but it's but it's solutionism, right? Yes. It's, it's this is. I think Evgeny Morozov came up with this idea. Yes, he did. Of like, wherever there's a problem, there's a solution, and it's probably a technological solution of some type. And then we all we need is like more technological solutions, and then we will have solved all of our problems. And big data is probably part of it. Yeah. Almost certainly. Yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. And there was a guy who, the guy from Apple uh, who invented Siri, also forgot his name because I only remember ideas. Um, but his thing was, oh, we shouldn't think of um, technology as a threat. We should think of it as our companions. They're going to like, you know, they're yeah. going to augment our experiences in life and make us smarter. And that was a huge theme because the theme of the TED conference in, in, in general was the future you. So it was like, how are you going to be augmented by by artificial intelligence? So they're all really excited to live through her. Basically, they they really want live to be through Siri. Her, her, yeah, walking. Oh, they want to be walking. They want to be like in Phoenix and have Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> yeah, be their personal assistant. Speaking of yeah, non corporeal sex. Yeah, and then there was like <laughs> a lot of a lot of talk about like just having your brain interface directly with the yeah. internet, that kind of crap. And then and then you. Were kind of the counter-programming, I guess? Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, I was removed from the AI section, the hard science stuff with the with the boys. And I was put <laughs> into, like, well, actually, I was put into a Wednesday night 
session um, with David Miliband, who you might have da- heard of. Uh, David Miliband, like another overachieving white guy. Yay. Oh, uh, yeah. So he was um, talking about refugee advocacy. Right. And then there was this amazing woman who was also a Muslim um, woman uh, who was also talking about refugee advocacy. And like there was me, you know, like it wasn't clear <laughs> so why were, I was there. So you were there because you're like you're like the downer. Well, session. I I decided to spin it positively. Like I was there because in the evenings you're entertained. Like it's, there's music. There's much more clapping during this this talks. Like in so the the original session I was in was in the morning. And in the morning you're supposed to be like educated. You know, oh that's interesting. Oh you're supposed to like nod and think hard about what you just heard. In the evenings you're supposed to be like react, and it's like entertainment. By the way, TED. I always thought it was like technology education and entertainment design. It's entertainment and design. And like that really, like that really hit home when I was actually there because it is entertaining. Like the musicians they have, the artists, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. So like this, I, this is a question I have is like the people who attend and often they're shilling out like $6,000 okay, or more to be for clear, a ticket. 8,500 oh, for typical tickets. But if you want to get in early to get a good seat, 25,000. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So like, what are they like? What are they getting out of this? Okay, and, like, and and plus, who are okay? So who let's, are they? Yeah. let's let's come to this in the next segment because the whole like who is the audience for Ted and who is on stage is perennially fascinating to me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so the first question is, these tickets famously sell out in like a millisecond. They're like, you know, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen tickets or something. Only they're much more expensive. And is it just rich members of the public is it people spending their own money is it people spending their like you know is it all going on a corporate card somehow who are these who are these people a lot of them are working in family offices i just like Uh, introduce myself to a bunch of them um so there are people that just i don't know if that means that they're getting paid to go but no if you meet someone and you ask them what they do and and they say i work in the family office um what that means is I have so much money, I don't need to work. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I worked at a family office, so. But no, no. Like the the people who are going who work in the family offices, like generally, they're going to be a member of the family. And and so what? And my job is to invest my own money. That's my impression. And um, I should say, I think the biggest draw isn't the talks. The okay. biggest draw is the entertainment at night. Like there's so many parties and dinners. Like I got invited to multiple things that I couldn't possibly go to all of them. But I think a lot of people try. Like they're like, <laughs> I have to make an appearance at this party. And then at this Jeffersonian dinner with the following theme of how to save the world. And it has that, like those dinners, by the way, have a little bit of a Davos feel to them. I was like, about to ask, is this basically the, like the social circuit for sound these people? very Davosian. Yeah, I went to karaoke, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are the karaoke places? <laughs> and I had like a like a sort of counter anti Jeffersonian dinner thing going on, but I'm just saying those people are there to see each other. Okay, and many of them have gone for twelve years or more, and they're like, oh, 
Linda, where are you? Oh my God, Scott, so good to see you. Like, have you met so-and-so? And it's like the most networky thing I've ever been to. Are there any like true TED Talk like connoisseurs? Like, is there some guy who watches these things the way like Hemingway watched bullfights or something? <laughs> yeah, well, and, well, there With, it is. And, and, and his name is Chris Anderson. And okay. he basically, inv- now let, we have to, we can't talk about TED without talking about Chris Anderson. So yeah, um, Kathy, you've had... Um, more time with him than any of us. So, like, tell us about Chris. Well, Chris is like somewhere in between, like a, a supervillain and like a true believer. And you can't, you know, <laughs> he really does um, know how to pick things that are going to feel profound to the audience. Um, and I think that's his that's his skill. Um, but he also, you know, like he he. You know, he can't possibly agree with A and not A, but he manages to come on stage after both of those talks, like which are one expounding A and the other one not A, and say, oh, that was so profound. I mean, he says it in a British accent. Could you do that? Oh, that was so profound. But I have to, if, if I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read something out, I have to read actually out this this piece, which um, Evgeny Morozov wrote five years ago. He, he says, I take no pleasure. He, took, he takes great pleasure, oh, that guy, by the way. That guy is. That, that's a supervillain right there. In declaring what has been obvious for some time, that Ted is no longer a responsible curator of ideas worth spreading. Instead, it has become something ludicrous and a little sinister. And he's kind of right about this. Um, he calls it an insatiable kingpin of international meme laundering, mm, <laughs> which mm. is a great phrase. And, that is a good one. And then he goes on to say he, um, that... that Chris Anderson should explain how ideas worth spreading become ideas no footnotes can support. You know, look, I just tell you, I was very conflicted about doing a TED Talk because I, you know, I felt like I was like a little bit of window dressing on an otherwise pretty sort of nefarious gig. I do feel like having been there that there were quite a few pieces of window dressing. Like at some point, if you have enough window dressing, it's not window dressing anymore, right? If you have enough sort of token um, like progressives or token people who who think differently, then it's actually kind of a mix. Um, and I feel like we almost reached that point. Um, and, and it was really great having the Pope talk. Like, he, I mean, <laughs> honestly, like he brought a really needed a secondary message because we had that that day which was monday we'd had just a, a series of people talking about how it's going to be great uh, in the future because there's going to be even more inequality this is not how they said it um and we're going to be in charge right and that that was my interpretation and then the pope just came on and was like you can't think of only technology as like a way to own more you have to think of these of this you have to think of the numbers and the people behind the numbers and we are in charge of taking care of people not just ourselves and i was like thank god for the pope so uh, well, the question i have is less about the pope and more about like the smart people giving the bulk of the talks yeah um and i guess what i want to know is how much of a delta is there between their normally you know really quite smart and thoughtful professional lives on the one hand and then the 20-minute TED distillation of what they do on the other. When they're on stage saying, we are going to solve all the world's problems with technology, is that because they believe it or is that because that's what the TED people have pushed them into saying? You know, that's a good question. I think my impression was they believed most of it, that people, you know, they, they're given a lot of time to think about how to distill their thoughts into 12 minutes, as I was, um, and usually 12 minutes, by the way. <laughs> um 
I didn't say, and I wasn't told what to say. Just to be clear, like I wasn't, I but wasn't. You, told but what how to many say. like rehearsals? How many times did you need to give your talk twice. to the TED people? Only twice. Yeah, I had okay. to do it once in New York with Chris Anderson there complaining and Ray Dalio complaining. <laughs> uh, Ray Dalio tried to correct me about what an algorithm was, um, <laughs> and then uh, and then I had a rehearsal at TED. So what did Ray Dalio say? Oh my yeah. God! And, and you're going to see this when it comes out, which will be in a few months, but. He just talked about how great algorithms are. And at some point, he actually tried and almost succeeded in getting people to sort of chant the word meritocracy. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, this is going to go so viral. This is going to... And I was like... Speaking of supervillains. Oh, I my thought, God. I thought we all agree that meritocracy is an empty concept. Oh, like, well, no, wow. So meritocracy is a concept which is invented by Lord Young in England as this kind of dystopian future. He's like, we're going to wind up in this horrible meritocracy where the only people who succeed are the, like, you know, the cognitive elite and all the rest of us get shafted. Yes. And and it became this like good thing somehow. And, everyone, and, and Young was like, what the hell just happened? Exactly. What? And if you're looking for an audience of people that will clap when you're like, who doesn't want meritocracy? <laughs> Let's hear it for meritocracy. <laughs> like, Ted is a pretty good audience to start there. And like there were claps and it was shocking to me because I was like, oh shit, there's like, it's worse than I thought. Um, But that, you know, so going back to the original question, I mean, I talked to someone in Japan who distilled it perfectly for me. Like she said that like in Japan, if you have even gone to Ted, then you're considered more um, like more in more like wise um, so you, you like you just like the, you're, you're halfway to becoming a living national treasure. Yeah, Wait. you're like the branding of Ted just leaks onto you and sticks, and like you are just you're more important. So because and that's essentially why they then don't pay you. Is that their argument? Well, that- yeah. Well, yes. I mean, they don't have to pay you, and and the, the, every step of the way, I should mention that they sort of make it completely clear that you should be grateful for all their comments <laughs> and complaints, and that that if you, if you get if you're complaining about twelve minutes, they might bring it down to nine. You know, it's like <laughs> absolutely clear who's in charge. And and the idea is that once your video goes viral yeah. on the internet, you're going to become a thought leader celebrity well, and everyone is going to be falling over each other to phone up your speaking agent to offer you hundreds of thousands of dollars to give speeches. So, Felix, I just want to say that one of the things that I found most off-putting about my experience last week was that it was completely unironic. Like there were no snarky comments. Everybody was super earnest and they felt like they were in a sacred space. And when they say things like thought leader, they meant it. Oh. And I was like, can we kill ourselves now? Like, I want to die. Well, it uh, has that like church feel to it. This kind of tent revival. The audience is right. primed to that's believe right. everything that you a, say. No matter- uh, yeah. A few years ago, there was this like parody video of, of a mashup of all of the TED Talks one year, which turned out not to be a parody video. It was just someone who was such a true <laughs> believer that they, they, they put all of the... My favorite bit was this woman who got up on stage and said, we can change the world if we believe the impossible. That is, that's exactly the kind of thing that gets t- said at TED Talks. And I'm sitting there like, you know, um, but people are just like, so true, yeah. so profound, yeah. you know, and they just, they left their cynicism at the door. So, so what percentage of the like audience is actually American versus international though? Because I wonder if some of like the lack of cynicism uh, and irony comes from the international flavor of the event. It's no, I, I think it comes from the West Coastness. Of oh, it. is that almost, yeah. okay. almost nobody is, and that's why it's so special. Okay, if you even get to go, um, it's really very American, very Silicon Valley. Okay. 
And is there actually a Q&A after you give the talk? Sometimes. It depends on how much setup time there is for the next talk. Like if you're right before a band, then definitely. <laughs> but I, And I had like one question. So yeah, most people get about one question. Because it does seem like that's part of the problem of TED in general is just that people are giving talks. There, there aren't debates. There are no questions. You can kind of sometimes potentially make lazy arguments because the audience is primed to believe everything you say, to not criticize. Having said that, like, that's true. And it is a problem, although it would be hard to interact with 2000 people, which is it's a large place. But having said that, like, there are there were some really interesting moments in conversations after the talks, you know, like in the bars and in the lobbies where people are like, listen, you brought this up. I disagree. Let's have this out. So in that sense and by, you know, in that sense, it was an interesting place to be because there were lots and lots of interesting people and there were some lots of famous people, too. And that's the other thing, like when people buy tickets to TED, they don't just want to see each other. They also want to just say, I met Al Gore, who was in the climate change. Who was who is your top like? intellectual celebrity crush that you met in Ted? I met Adam Savage. Oh. Who loved my talk and gave me a big hug. And like, I'm, he is, he's, if you, people don't know, he, he was the, one of the stars of Mythbusters. And oh, yeah, um, yeah, my yeah. kids and my husband all worship him. So I was just like, I'm getting so many brownie points from my kids right now. <laughs> um, but he, he was great. You know, I was like, I was so like not starstruck um, for the most part. But when I met Adam Savage, I was like, oh my God, I just touched You're Adam like, Savage. Pope. Eh, Adam Savage. <laughs> Holy shit. Let me touch your like garment. <laughs> well, the Pope, Pope was in the Vatican, but yeah. Yeah, oh, the God. Pope didn't actually physically turn up. Oh, uh, okay. Is, was there an Elon Musk story you needed to share? Look, I mean, I just want to say this about Elon Musk. And uh, after spending way too much of the time thinking about him in the last week, which is that if he lived in my like neighbor's basement, like it, he lived with his parents in the basement ne- nearby. And like, I went over every now and then and like, Oh, Elon's here. Like, tell us about your newest idea, Elon. And he's like, Oh, I want to build a tunnel. <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh, that's so cute. Elon go back downstairs. And I would actually really enjoy him. But like, as it is as a, like a cult leader where people believe the stuff he says, it is fascinating and awful. Have you talked to the Hyperloop true believers? I've talked to way too many true believers, Elon Musk style. Yes. And I mean, they're all nuts. And they have no, it's like not scientific. It's like almost to the point of like climate change denial because they're like, let's just say this is true. Yeah. But like, okay. So aside from, okay, the hyperloop and the tunneling and like, (laughs) if you leave that, that what have the Romans done for us? (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, like, I mean, Tesla is a pretty cool company. Like if Tesla yeah. and like it's so far, it is doing it is delivering on what it has said it would deliver on its time. No, it's failed less. to deliver on almost all no, of its promises. I, Look, Elon I Musk is a salesman that. and yeah. he hit upon something that's selling. Yeah. I'm not dis- disregarding that, but he's a salesman and not a scientist. And, okay, well, and let's right. be clear that he is selling his ideas much more successfully than he is selling his cars. He has like 1% of the car market. Yeah, but no one expected him to have a ton of the cars. Right. It's, he's also point. talking about ridiculous things that will not work. Well, yeah, and people aren't pushing back on him, and that's what I have the but problem. I feel with. like maybe that's part of the genius of sell- like that's part of selling the cars in some way. It's stupid and selling and selling the solar. Like I feel like maybe that aura of Tony Starkness is like what you, the, the possibility that he's going to create the actual like weird AI inception, whatever the hell singularity moment is what sells more of his cars. Wait, oh, yeah. and, I, and, they, yeah. and on the subjects of Ted talk, yeah. I need, I need to ask about Elon's Ted talk. Did he give a Ted talk no. or did he just, because Q&A. when you are super, super important, you get to not prepare and just sit down and give a Q and a, right? Serena Williams and Elon Musk. And Q&A. the Pope. 
Oh, and even the Pope had a speech. The Pope gave a talk. The Pope gave a talk. The, the Pope put out. <laughs> Elon Musk. Well, Trump's the Pope. That's, this is what I was saying. Dude, earlier. the Pope put out. But he was in the Vatican. Wait. That's true. He didn't travel. So here's my favorite Elon Musk. You, you saw he's dating Amber Heard, right? Don't know who that is. Okay. Model. Yeah, model. Like, she's she's very, very good looking woman. Um, And what's... Everyone so they're perfect Slate. for each other. Well, so <laughs> the thing at Slate, we, we realize at Slate is that, you know, there's that famous Matthew McConaughey line, I keep getting older and the girls keep getting the same age, stay the same age. Or, I'm sorry, I keep, go- yeah, I keep getting older and the girls stay the same age. He's the reverse of that. Like, if you look at early Elon Musk photos, he's a really, like, nerdy kind of ugly... He was balding. Like, he's had serious hair plugs. And thanks to whatever combination of, like, you know, like macro foods and cosmetic surgery he has subjected himself to. It's the girls keep staying the same age and he keeps getting younger. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Benjamin Button. Yeah. He's, um, it's, it's so he remarkable. has actually succeeded in what Peter Thiel, you know, wants to do, yes. like, do in I mean, becoming a more Living in the forever. basement is good for him somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's not being exposed to UV radiation. Yeah. Like he's living, you know what it is? He's living as a teenage sci fi fan. And I, my husband is a teenage sci-fi fan who, by the way, had this idea of tunnels at some point, like 10 years ago. And I was like, that's really nice. Go do some math. You know what I mean? It's just like Elon Musk is hero worshipped by everyone who wants to feel good about themselves for buying a really expensive car. Yeah. And that is a power that he should not have. But isn't that like so much of Ted, though, in general? It's just like, yes. yeah. like He's worship- a perfect metaphor. Chris Anderson and Elon Musk, a marriage made in thought leader heaven. <laughs> Kill me now. <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're going to move on, I think, to this whole concept of monetizing speeches. So, Kathy. Yeah. I feel like Ted has done a number of things to sort of discourse, but one of the things it has done is it's created the concept of the speech as something entertaining and valuable and something which increasing numbers of conferences and groups are willing to pay astonishing amounts of money for. And this is the, I guess, how spoken, how unspoken is it idea behind TED that if you give a TED talk, you will then have this like long line of people queuing up to throw money at you. I mean, I said it a lot. People looked at me like, why are you talking about that? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, um, so I have a a speaker agent, a speaking agent, which I got like basically when my book was about to come out. And my speaking agent is this wonderful person because basically if you've written a book that is that's popular, like you're going to get invited uh, three times a day to do something at least at least once a day to like, oh, will you come to, you know, Utah in in august to talk to my reu like my undergrad program in the summer and we don't have any money but like we'll pay for a a coach ticket and you're like no (laughs) literally if i do all those things i will never be at home and i will not make any money right so you get a speaking agent and the speaking agent says well we're not going to let you do anything unless it's at least five thousand dollars 
And then, and then like, when I first got this speaking agent, I was like, awesome. I'm never going to have to give another talk. <laughs> <laughs> but like every now and then, like they'll pay, they'll pay you that much money. And it's kind of amazing. Right. Um, but until you realize that it's actually a lot of work and they make you come in a day early and stay in a day late and like, you know, so it's a lot of work actually. And if you think about doing that once a week, it's, it's kind of, kind of daunting and I don't do it once a week, but then, then then you start understanding what this really is. And what it really is, is an industry of conferences. You, know, you, you mentioned the TED Talk part of it, which is a very important part. But the real, the real industry is the conferences themselves. And they're industry conferences. So they're in Las Vegas conference centers. I've been to like the Caesars Palace conference center. I wanted to die the entire time. <laughs> and they charge a shit ton of money for the attendants who get paid by their companies to go. So they charge $800 a head. Or m- much more. Um, or more. And then, well, they have to show them something. So they hire people to speak. So it's it's a middleman industry, but it, it, it works very, very well. And I'll just add that they can charge more if they have TED speakers. And that's why if you're a TED speaker, you can charge more to come because you're like, I'm endowing your conference with this with this extra special brand, which is the TED brand. So it's really that that is the, the way you should think about things. And, and the and the speaking fee market is is crazy and virtually anyone who's written the book has you know will will tell you i mean most non i would say the majority of non-fiction books you actually wind up making more money off the speaking mm-hmm. fees than you do off the of book. Course. yeah that's when someone says it's like a business card the book has become a business card that's almost certainly what they're talking about now and this is a relatively new phenomenon like 20 years ago this was not the case and there's been this bizarre confluence of as the internet has digitized everything the demand for in-person conferences where you physically sit in a room and physically listen to someone physically talk has just gone up and up and up and it doesn't seem to be abating at all there's like an bottomless amount of demand which is one of the reasons that the fees are so high for people who can give physical talks in physical places and is that a bad thing i mean i think there's often this idea that like there's something inherently kind of bad or sleazy about getting paid to give a talk. And I don't really quite understand why that is. Well, I think it depends on who you are and who you're talking to. I, I I will say I think that the live entertainment part of it just sort of mirrors what we're seeing in other industries like music. I mean, that's the same thing as well, recorded music has become less valuable. Actually, live entertainment has. It seems like maybe that's this is a version of that. People crave just like being near the Mythbuster, like, you know, or the, you know, being there when the Pope spoke or whatnot, or, um, but or Elon Musk, I guess, who is the Pope for some. But so, I mean, I think to your question, though, about why some people find it sketchy and, you know, Felix, you mentioned Barack Obama. Again, it, it depends on if, you know, there's a sense that you're getting paid. There's a sense to a lot of people, these speeches aren't necessarily a ton of work unless it's something like a TED Talk. And so if you're getting paid a gruesome amount of money and it seems like you're just kind of it's transactional and you're going to add it is actually about buying your favor in some way then i think that is it about buying your well, favor okay so this is i think we have to make distinguish two different things yeah. one is like the person who's written a non-fiction book and then gives a talk yeah. you know which is i think most of us find relatively unobjectionable versus on the other hand the politicians and if you know and we all sat through the most painful and longest and most gruesome election campaign of all time where you couldn't go five minutes without hearing about the amount of money that Goldman Sachs had paid Goldman, you know, Hillary Clinton to give speeches. And it clearly touched a nerve, right? And it's 
And whether or not she wound up providing value for the speeches that she gave, the ultimately she was collecting a bunch of money from Goldman Sachs and it looked weird and the optics were weird. And every time a politician winds up making an enormous amount of money from a financial services company for basically no work, <clears throat> George Osborne, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it looks weird. I get it. And I, I get that the optics are bad, although I think the George Osborne example versus Hillary Clinton. And also, I, I do think there's also a difference with Barack Obama. He is no longer running for anything. Yeah, I, mean, I want to jump still... in here. I want to throw in a little I'm going to give it a little bit more heft because when you give a talk somewhere and I, you know, I've given quite a few talks like you you're told what the context is and you don't just give the same exact talk unless you're an asshole like or unless you're a top-ranked politician in which case you probably don't give a talk at all and it's just a very friendly softball q a you could yeah. have a q a right um but you almost always i would say always have lunch or dinner or both with your hosts and i think that access is what we're talking about when we hear about two hundred fifty thousand dollars. definitely and and the other access, the other issue is like you are going to give a you're going to change your talk and you're going to change the talking points of your talk for your audience. And that process of doing it, which you're doing because you're getting all this money, actually makes you think about things differently. And that that is also kind of inf influence on the speaker. Certainly that this is this is a really good point that if you get a politician in to talk in depth on a certain subject and then you're having dinner with them and talking more in depth about the same subject this is a level of access to politicians and a level of influence on politicians because that's how people are influenced by is not just by money but also just about like talking on certain subjects with certain people who have certain opinions the, you know from a lobbyist perspective that's an incredibly efficient way of putting ideas in front of these people yeah and i would also say that I, I want to distinguish between the kind of talks I do with the conferences, conference centers versus like the book talks versus the Goldman Sachs things, which are really different. Like Goldman Sachs has its own boutique kind of speaker session stuff that has. And I went to the CIA, so I had one of those kinds of experiences, but it's it's nothing like the conferences. Right. I, I don't know. I, I've been to a lot of these types of conferences. I mean, you have different. You have you have your client conferences. We are essentially bringing in a big name speaker to entertain your clients and to make you look cool. Like you have your Nate Silvers and your Malcolm Gladwells who do these all the time. Mm -hmm. And and then you have your industry specific conferences where you're bringing in companies where people, you know, you're meeting with investors and then you have your keynote speaker. Again, it's a little different because usually you're talking about a more specific industry focused thing at that point. But I, so again, I, I think a lot of it is much more about entertainment than currying favor in terms of what the industry is trying to get out of it. Having said that, I don't disagree that I think one of the bigger issues is just the influence of being in that environment only around a certain type of people and how that can influence your ideas. And Obama has actually spoken specifically about this previously. Having said that, I, I mean, I think all the criticism Obama get, is getting is a little overwrought. Well, I think, I mean, it's a lot of people who are disappointed because they were hoping he could still survive as some sort of political symbol in the Trump era. And it kind of, given the feeling of the Democratic Party towards banks, it's he has a taint in a way Wait, that he's so taking their money. Let's just be clear. He's he's giving a talk where for how much? At Cantor Fitzgerald to a healthcare conference for $400,000. Yeah. I mean, personally, I would say that if he also gives talks at like the ACLU, you know, and he if he if like that's how much they needed to pay him for him to like stop windsurfing, you know, yeah. 
that makes sense. Um, but he should also be be talking to other people, which he is doing. Which he is, and and I don't think anyone's talking about like the opportunity cost of the talk here. They're not saying you know you're making four hundred thousand dollars giving a talk to Kenneth Fitzgerald when you could be doing something else instead. That you know, I think the problem is why are you taking four hundred thousand dollars from Kenneth Fitzgerald when you just signed a sixty five million dollar book? deal you are clearly you don't clearly don't need the money Dude, 65 million really 60 mm-hmm. yeah for him and michelle yeah but but no but but he also need the money You're right right but he is also talking at a healthcare conference which i think is somewhat important i think nobody points out that he is probably going to be talking about his views on healthcare. probably but i think that i mean in the end the, the political debate here comes down to the fact that a lot of people on the left and in the democratic party just want to sever the connection between the party and banks like that's which i that's what, think that's is a little really, absurd Maybe. And also, I, don't know. I would argue that Obama neither ran nor governed as no, he did an not. extreme. I mean, he he it, he specifically governed saying that, like, the party actually needs to work with finance and business. So but, I don't think he's being a hypocrite. He, I, I, he, no, in some ways, and, and some of the responses to this have been from people who said, hey, this has been him all along. He's always been, you know, some people have been saying he's always been in the bankers' pockets. And um, I'll just I'll just jump in and say, like, a black guy and a white woman get a lot more criticism about their speaker fees than a lot of white guys. Completely agree. Well, except for Tony Blair, because there's a whole industry in the UK of criticizing Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different thing. <laughs> Exception proves the rule. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. So I think I think we should have a numbers round. Okay. Because, you know, we, we're going to... why not? Because when, it's been a while since we've had a Kathy O'Neill number. I got a doozy. You got a doozy? What's yeah. your doozy? 35%. 0.35. Um, th- so there's a female engineer at Facebook who came out with an analysis that said that women at Facebook who are coders get 35% more complaints than men coders on average. And it was, it just sounded pretty bad, right? That's but it, pretty bad. Yeah, right. But Facebook came out with a counter analysis. I hate this counter analysis so much. No, I yeah, love yeah. it. I love it. It's so interesting, <laughs> which they said, well, but if you, if you subgroup people by rank of like how fancy of an engineer, are you a junior engineer or senior engineer? then it's the discrepancy goes away. Yes, but here's the thing. The original analysis stood up to um, when you controlled for tenure at Facebook. Really? Yes. Yeah. So basically, the rank thing, if, if you wind up not getting promoted when you get more complaints, regardless of how long you've been at Facebook then basically you're controlling for the sexism which you're trying to discover. I see. Well, listen, I mean, I was talking, thinking about it a different way, um, which is that it's a Simpsons paradox. 
but I, but it's not, it, any Simpsons paradox. And a Simpsons paradox is like where a statistic looks like has one trend if you look at it in aggregate, but a different trend if you subdivide and look in each uh, subcategory. Um, but it did beg the question, of course, why are there more women who are junior? you know, relative to instead of senior. And, and my, one of the questions is like, well, do they leave before they get promoted or do they just never get promoted? And what you're saying is like, they don't get promoted as often or as quickly. And, and I've been going back and forth on Twitter about this for like the past three days. And there's some interesting um, debates, but the most interesting debate is basically, it comes down to, is there endemic sexism in Facebook or is there some other reason why women should be underrepresented among the senior ranks of engineers? And what my answer to that question is like, yes, I have certain priors here about like their sexism, but I have good reasons for those priors. And, mm-hmm. I, and my priors have been supported by this analysis. And that if you find some other reason why women might be underrepresented among senior engineers at Facebook, you kind of scratch the surface of that other reason and it will probably turn out to be sexism in some way or another. It's all, yeah, it's it's rampant. It's rampant. And I'll just throw in one thing which I haven't seen on Twitter this week, <laughs> um, but I'm going to be having a blog on, my, on Math Babe on Monday about it, which is how difficult it is to find a mentor if you're a junior woman. Like the senior women already have too many mentor- mentees mm-hmm. and the senior men are either skeevy or want to stay away from you because it doesn't look right. right. So it's a real problem um, and we haven't addressed it. And Sheryl Sandberg with her lean in thing, that's not yeah, it's not working so far. I mean, I think that's a problem in any kind of male dominated industry when you're a junior woman is that you almost have to align yourself with the man. But then that's complicated. Yeah. So it's that's right. Anna. So my number is 12 percent, which is the official unemployment rate in Iran. Although the real rate is probably closer to 20%. And the reason I bring this up is just so to have one place to actually talk about the Iranian election because no one is talking about Wait, it. There's it's, an election in Iran? Yeah, it's, it's actually incredibly significant in terms of the region, in terms of Syria, in terms of Yemen. And we're all talking about France and we're not talking who's, about the fact who's that... Who's up for election in Iran? I don't even know. Uh, Rouhani? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and... Meh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the person who's leading the country, who you know, is we have is, the is nuclear deal, and probably, but right now the the pr- primary op- opponent is a hardline cleric who essentially has no governing experience, but lots of experience writing death warrants. Oh God, interesting. And so it is really important. I mean, like this is, I would argue that this this election is actually far more important than the French election, and nobody's talking about it. So I ha- see is his name, by the way, the opponent. I, I have my number is seventy three billion dollars, which I'm throwing in here if for no one else's sake other than just for Anna, because you know we we're the debt nerds. Um, mm-hmm. It finally happened this week, the inevitable, um, but it took much longer than people expected. Puerto Rico officially yes. defaulted uh, yeah. on its seventy three billion dollars in yep. debt, so. Um, it's it's a really gnarly situation, which is, I mean, it wasn't even allowed to declare bankruptcy up until about a year ago when they passed this law, which finally allowed them to back, declare bankruptcy. And then it's taken them about a year to get around to doing it. Um, the bondholders are still being incredibly unrealistic and this is going to take a long time to work out. But, but that's yeah. also what you do as bondholders. <laughs> but, this is, but this is the, you know, peop- it hasn't been getting nearly as many headlines as... Greece or Argentina, but it's in that order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and meanwhile, I saw a thing that said that Puerto Rico's population decline apparently rivals the Irish potato famine. Right wow. now. Like, well, it's, it's not good. It's been going yeah. down steadily for, what, 25 years? Something, yeah. Um, and, and what happens, of course, is that you know. the people who leave are the smart people who get the good jobs, and they get the good jobs in New York or Miami or somewhere like that. And the people who are left are the people who are reliant on the welfare state. So there's literally no way that it can even break even in terms of budget, let alone have money left over to pay its interest expenses. Mm. Yeah. Uh, my number is uh, also Facebook-related. It's 3,000. It's the number of moderators. Uh, the uh, site is, or the company, is hiring to police murder and mayhem on its videos. Um, you know, there are some issues with people actually live streaming murders and shootings and such and not just in the u.s uh and so they're finally trying to crack down on it it's, and rapes too. and rapes i mean it's just you know it's good that they're doing this it's the kind of thing that perhaps they should have thought of a little bit ahead of time i have a friend who's kind of reported on this and just th- that facebook kind of went into its video offerings with no sense of what could go wrong how, how like there was no forethought about how someone might misuse the ability to you know live stream shooting someone on the world's greatest what could possibly platform. go wrong yeah exactly so they're catching up that's good it also just like you know there is this realization i think on their part that they are a media company that is what they are at this hmm, point they are interesting do you know if those three thousand people are going to just watch random things or are they watching things that have been like reported i think they're looking for flagged i i believe they're looking for flagged videos so it's still in some sense crowdsourcing right to some extent, but I mean, on such a big platform. At know. this point, how else do you? I mean, screen. And I, I think it's a step in the right direction. So, at least they're acknowledging what they are. Yeah. So I, I think that's it. I think. I think. Sad. I missed you guys. I like. I. I don't know how I can. You know, really. It's. It's been bittersweet. So true. <laughs> Kathy, it's so awesome to have you back here. You're also always welcome back, and many congratulations on now being officially covered in the thin film of Ted <laughs> for the rest shower when for I get the home. rest of your life you're going to be covered it you're going to be the Ted talk Kathy O'Neill who will you know your your minimum fee has now gone up to $20,000 and they are going to be rich this is, you know what I, I'll, I'll make do I'll make do <laughs> Given our conversation about the, what goes on in the village, the thin film of Ted is just like, mean many things just like awful <laughs> so so what is your talk going to appear online? Was it up to them? Was it may or may not? Or? Totally up to them. Totally up to them. But I'm I maybe, and, and I expect it will, and I'm hoping for it to come around uh, out around the time my soft cover comes out in September. Synergy. You like how I slid that in there? <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to read Kathy's book, but you felt weird buying a hardback... <laughs> I also added an afterword. It's like a new chapter. There's a you you can get the entire book plus an afterword at the bargain cost of something less. Something like, less. <laughs> like fourteen dollars, maybe twelve. In know. September. September. Trade paperbacks. We yes. love them. Yes, we do. So buy Kathy O'Neill's book in hardcover now or in paperback in September. Thank you, Kathy, My for pleasure. coming. Thank you, Anna Shemansky, for being Happy to be here. Here as ever. Thank you, Jordan O'Neill. Thank you to Dan Schrader, who Jordan is the O'Neill. new producer. 
Um, I just you, <laughs> I just got you renamed. You called him Jordan O'Neill. I just got combined with Kathy. <laughs> Wait, Jordan? Did I say Jordan O'Neill? Yeah, yeah. I, I just got sunned. Dude, <laughs> no, Wonder wow. Twin powers activate. I, I, <laughs> part of, of an ice cube. Am I part of the family now? One hundred percent. Jordan yes. O'Neill. Like you know, Weissman is like it's there's too many letters. <laughs> we'll just we'll just call you Jordan O'Neill from now on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sure, Felix. Thanks. <laughs> Um, apologies to Jordan Weissman, to Dan Schrader, to Steve Ligti, to Andy Bowers, to June Thomas, to the entire Panoply network at panoply.fm. Keep those emails coming. We are here as ever on Slate Money at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. How you